Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to Bible study. Good to see you all tonight as we uh, continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, in the 21st chapter, we had a good study last week and uh, a good one ahead tonight, also in the 21st chapter. So good to see y'all's faces and their faces tonight. Hope y'all had a good week so far at work and not at work and whatever you do during the day. But everything has been well with you. Talked to the doctor on, on Monday. Got my lab done and everything is good. My A1C is good and my cholesterols uh, are good and uh, what else? My kidney function is good. Everything's up on there. Everything's checking out. So, and big numbers that we want to see. So, I'm good on that. Yeah. I'll tell my wife, uh, fighting my size, I don't eat as much as you think I do. Mm. I, don't, I don't really eat a lot um, like I used to. I used to eat more faster. Uh, I'm not as glutton like I was in my younger days. I learned not to eat so much. So, I've done well with that. Um, so we're going to be in the 21st chapter tonight, and we're going to pray and seek the Lord's help as we go into this study. So let us pray. Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for your word. This is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, help me tonight as I teach this lesson that I've been studying it this week. Um, fill me with your spirit to teach this text, and Lord, send your spirit to illuminate your truths uh, tonight in your word. And Lord, while we're praying, we're praying for the families of those who lost loved ones in Nashville, Tennessee, at Covenant uh, Christian uh, School, uh, who lost their lives senselessly. And one of the victims was the pastor's uh, wife, the one that, uh, the head administrator of the school. And there were three children and three adults whose lives were taken. And Lord, we pray for that church family. Uh, we pray for that school family. We pray for that community that was affected by uh, that shooting. We pray that your comfort of the Holy Spirit be with them as the Christian community comes together to mourn their loss up in that area. Lord, evil will not ultimately triumph over you. And we thank you for that. That uh, one day when you do come back, that final justice will be adjudicated. You are the final judge and arbiter of all things, Lord, and we trust all things to you, especially those things that we don't understand. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And we, um, <clears throat> I talked with some other brothers about the situation up in Nashville, that solid church, PCA church, uh, Presbyterian church, and uh, very uh, sad about what happened up there, so I want to keep them in our thoughts and prayers. And, and I'll say this also, prayers do work. Uh, and I saw the, the pro, uh, no more thoughts and prayers, policy and change type thing, but policies don't change hearts. Only God changes hearts. And uh, we, we pray to God to change hearts. Uh, you can change policies and have as many laws as you want to, but that's not going to change uh, the sinful heart of man. So we must always remember and not fall into that trap. 
So uh, Deuteronomy 21 deals with various laws. The first one we're going to deal with is atonement for unsolved murders. Um, who used to watch uh, Murder, She Wrote <laughs> uh, with Angela Lansbury? Anybody watch that show before? Uh, if you're of a certain age, I'm sure you did watch it. Um, she was the crime solver. And so was Matlock. Well, Matlock was one of my favorite uh, shows on television. That was what Matlock did. Matlock helped to solve mysteries. You know, all those mystery shows were big in the 80s. Yeah, Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, Matlock. Uh, what were some of the other ones? Yeah, Perry Mason. Yeah, Perry Mason was the judge. Raymond Burr was Perry Mason. I mean, my grandmother used to sit up and watch uh, Perry Mason. I used to watch it with me. It used to come on TNT, Turner Network Television, and uh, we used to watch Perry Mason. All those, all those crime-solving shows were big in the in the eighties, and they were all about solving uh, mysteries, murder mysteries, and um, you know, Scooby Doo cartoon was about that too. I talked about that, I think, last week. You know, the mystery machine. Actually, this past Sunday. Uh, so, but all of them dealt with solving crimes, and there are a lot of crimes that go unsolved, even in our um, nation today, especially, um, I was reading a statistic that, I know in the city of Chicago, for instance, 50% of the homicides are unsolved, and sometimes you'll see, like, you know, I watch Fox 6 a lot, and sometimes you'll see stories on there by parents that are still grieving the loss of a, a child or an adult family member. Um, you know, finding information, if anybody knows the information, you know, about this crime. Sometimes they're two, three, four years old, five years old, ten years old. You know, those cases, yeah, four to seven years, those cases go unsolved. And uh, that's tough for the families when they have a murder one who's murdered especially, and uh, that murder goes unsolved. Uh, <clears throat> so the Bible here uh, addresses a law for uh, unsolved murder. So let's look at these first few verses here. It says, If in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer, which is a female cow, that has uh, never been worked, and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of the Levites, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken <laughs> in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of the innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. For you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight 
of the Lord. So again, this is atonement for unsolved murders. So one of the things about uh, why this law was instituted, it was to keep the promised land from desecration. Uh, because it says here they found a body that was laying somewhere, like a body was just found somewhere, like laying in a ditch or in this case in the uh, open country. If anyone is found slain, so that means it, it could be death from natural causes uh, or just someone who was murdered and yet uh, no one knows who killed them. So the body wasn't just to stay there and something had to be done to uh, atone for this. So uh, this was based on the principle that is found in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 35. So this is what this principle is based on. I'll read it for you right here if you want to turn to it with me. This principle in Numbers 35 verses 33 through 34. And this is what it says. It says, uh, you shall not, this is Numbers uh, 35 verse 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of it, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of of the people of Israel. So that's what this principle is based on in here that no, uh, the blood of the unsolved, the unavenged murder defiles the land. Okay? This is uh, goes back to the principle of justice and God's justice. In a perfect world, every murder is, uh, will be avenged. But we don't live in a perfect world. Uh, but the standard is still there there that uh, every murder uh, should be, the murderer should be punished. Uh, but as I said, you know, we have statistics that show that there are uh, countless murders that go unsolved. Uh, but there should be some type of uh, justice. And in, in our world, you can't give justice to a family if they have a loved one who has been murdered. So this principle here, uh, saying that this is a murder that is unavenged. But some type of cleansing had to be necessary. And so that's why the uh, sacrifice come in. And this cleansing was so that the land would not be defiled. So it was it was symbolic, but it was a good symbol for them. So then it goes into the uh, procedure. So you have the elders. Uh, first you have to find out where everything happened. So you have to have the jurisdiction uh, settled. So it said that uh, the city that is nearest where the slain uh, person was. So the elders were responsible uh, to make a sacrifice to atone uh, to and cleanse the land of the, of, of the person that was murdered. So they had to first find the nearest city. Okay, so they had to find the nearest city and they find the elders in that city uh, to do that. And of course, they had to find a, a female cow uh, who had not been uh, worked, so the appropriate sacrifice, uh, you know, was made. Okay, so and of course the priest had to, you know, wash their hands and everything in the presence of the sons of Levi, as it says here. So this was a ceremony of, of washing, which is a ceremony of, of cleansing. That's why I said the elders, verse four, shall bring the heifer down to the valley with running water which is neither plow nor stone and shall break the heifer's neck in the valley. There'll be some pretty strong people to do that. 
God can be even even heifers are, <laughs> you know. Um, and the priests of Levi, you know, who God has chosen, as we know that, uh, to, to bless and minister in the name of the Lord. Uh, they come down. They're the ones who are responsible for uh, doing this because that, that was their, their job. And then after this, they offer a prayer. And the prayer says, our hands have not shed this blood. So they're basically making testimony that they have not shed this blood, that they are innocent of this. Don't have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people. So again, the unavenged murders defile the land, so they ask the Lord to uh, provide atonement so that the land will not be defiled. And there's some principles, overall principles that we can look at. And then they say this prayer. Then atonement shall be provided on behalf for the blood. And the principle is at the end, you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So this is the overall principle of this practice right here. It is to put away the guilt of innocent blood. Because always remember, when you take a life, we read this in Genesis 9, I think last week, the week before last, uh, when you take a life, a life is supposed to be taken. Uh, when you murder, your life should be taken. That's that's where we get the principle of the death penalty from, you know, for the most part. Uh, but someone who was murdered, their, their life uh, must be avenged. But if it's not, it defiles the land, their blood defiles the land. So uh, God was very serious about the land being, being cleansed. And it was a way of removing guilt. And removing guilt is always based on a blood sacrifice. And this points to Christ. Remember, it is the blood of Christ that does what provides forgiveness for our sins, the atonement for our sins. Okay? Sins can't be atoned for without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, as the scripture says, uh, there is no remission of sins. So blood had to be shed in order for the guilt to be uh, taken away. So this little part right here looks toward the uh, looks forward to the substitutionary atonement of Christ, looking forward to the work of Christ on the cross, where His blood was shed to take away the the guilt of our sins and the forgiveness of sins. So we see. I was uh, listening to uh, Todd Creel on his, his uh, radio program yesterday. He was talking about uh, when the gospel was first preached. You know, he was talking about the, the these churches talking about justification for female pastors, and uh, you know they, they they referenced who was it Mary who gave the first word that Jesus rose from the dead. That you know that was the first time that you know the gospel was preached and it was preached by. Uh, a, a lady. So therefore, women should be preachers. <laughs> That's a very weak argument. Tom Friel says, no, the gospel was first preached in Genesis, the third chapter. You know, and then he, he went on throughout scripture. The gospel was preached through the flood. The gospel was preached uh, in the Exodus account. You know, he went all through the Old Testament when the gospel was preached through the, the types and shadows that we find in the Old Testament, through the uh, various ceremonial laws and the moral laws and all those things. But the gospel 
was preached even in the Old Testament. And we're looking at this passage right here. We see blood being shed to purge uh, the guilt of innocent blood. This points to Christ also. This is the this is the gospel where the blood has to be shed in order for our sins to be forgiven. There was no shedding of Christ's blood. We would still be guilty of our sins. Our sins will not be forgiven. So this is important to see the gospel in the Old Testament, the gospel in the book of Deuteronomy, and the gospel in other Old Testament books. It didn't just uh, begin, of course, Jesus himself preached the gospel. You know, uh, He was the embodiment of the gospel, but uh, it didn't just begin in the book of Matthew, in other words. So we see here in this passage that God provided atonement for this innocent blood by the shedding of the blood of, of the cow. And this was, again, pointing to uh, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so now we get to the second section, which talks about uh, female captives. And these are basically laws regarding taking a, a wife from conquered people because they are going to go into these nations and, and conquer them. So the Lord says to them, when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, you shall shave her head and pair or cut her nails or trim her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother for a full month. After that, you may go in to her and be her husband. And she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her sin. When I, when I was studying this this week and last week, the first thing I thought about, the first thought that came to my mind, literally, uh, literally the first thought that came to my mind is that Christianity is good to women. That's the first thing I thought. That Christianity is good to women and good for women, and it's better for women. And this passage made me think about that. So, the first thing, when they go into this land, and they fight against the Canaanites, and Amorites, and you know, all these different nations, uh, what was a common practice in the ancient world uh, was that a man would take a wife from among the captives. That was very common in antiquity, you know, when they went to war. Because all the wars were about conquest. You conquested the land, and you you took up the spoils, and part of the spoils was um, the wives. But the difference was God commanded Israel to do different than what the other nations did to the women of the nations they conquered. So everything that God told Israel to do, the opposite would happen when the pagans did the same thing. So when the pagan nations took uh, conquered other nations, they often raped their women. They often killed the children. They often made the women become slaves and servants. The women became subservient to the men. That's what the pagans did. They, they mistreated women. 
they raped them, they, you know, paraded them, they did all these different things. The, the kings had all these women in their harem and, and all those things. So the pagans had a very low view of women. God comes along with his covenant people and says, what? That's not how we're going to treat them. Now it says, especially if she was a beautiful woman, uh, but God gave specific guidelines to govern this practice uh, in Israel. So the first thing he says they ought to do is to uh, bring her home into your house. That means you're providing shelter for her. You don't leave her out to the elements or whatever. You, you bring her into your home. And then she is to shave her head and cut her nails. Why should, uh, should she do that? This is symbolic of departing from her former life. As a pagan, her former life uh, under a different uh, religious system or under the nation in which uh, she came from. And this also, uh, you can imply it included uh, whatever religious practices that she had. Because if she, if she was willing to be taken in, then she had to assimilate to a Jewish, a Hebrew uh, way of life. So she had to shave her hair. Of course her hair is going to grow back. You know? uh, uh, they were not as vain as they are now. She had to shave her hair, she had to, to cut her nails uh, to basically uh, parting with her, her past life. So this symbol of purification and humility, humility in a, in a good way, not a bad way. So she has to take a complete break from her past, okay, willing to start over again. That's what she would be doing. And then she was to put off her uh, clothes, take off the clothes in which she was captured. Okay, so she was to take off clothes in her, of her captivity, so to speak. So this was showing a change of allegiance because everybody didn't dress the same back then. They didn't shop at the same stores like how we do. You know, the different pagan nations, their women dress differently. So now becoming a, a Hebrew, she had to dress differently from the Canaanites or the Moabites or the Amorites or the Perizzites or the Hivites or the Hittites. She had to dress differently from whatever the nation she, she came from. So this is basically changing allegiances. Okay? That means that she is no longer regarded uh, by the former nation that she came from. Again, this is a breaking away from those things. And what it reminded me of was uh, you know, them coming from paganism to uh, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was going from a false religion to a true religion. Going from polytheism to monotheism. Okay? Going from paganism and witchcraft and all these other things that they uh, worshipped to worshiping the one true God having no other God before them. So, if you think about, well, and I know for me personally, this is what I did. I I was uh, what they call a cage sage when that when God saved me. I threw away all my rap CDs that I had. Uh, you know, I, I I prayed. You know, stopped smoking cigarettes and I stopped drinking alcohol and I just you know, stopped hanging out with the people I was hanging out with. I just wanted to make a a clean break from my past relationships. I mean, it was almost like cold turkey. You know, because I was that zealous at the time, you know, when, when God saved me and I got baptized, I was like so eager and so zealous to 
do away with my former life. You know, I'm no longer fear pay man. I'm Ronald pay man. You know, although my Facebook page is fear pay man, but anyway, uh, but that, that's what I was doing. I was just symbolically just getting rid of all those old relationships, especially the bad ones. You know, people I used to go hang out with and do whatever with, uh, all manner of sinful things. I want to make a break for that and not deal with those uh, practices anymore. So this is kind of what this, this reminded me of about those women who are in, in, in captivity. And also for us as believers, the same thing. You know, when we come to Christ, you know, about um, the old things have passed away. That's, um, that's, that's a spiritual thing, but also uh, old habits, uh, old dispositions, old ways of thinking. Now, they don't all pass away at once, open sesame. You know, it happens progressively over time as God sanctifies us by the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit and Word. As God does that in us, we begin to desire those things less than we came out of. We make a clean break with the world. We make a clean break with the worldly ways. Okay, we make a clean break with the things of the world. We make a clean break with the way in which we think, our uh, associations, all those things. We, we we desire to break away from those things, laying aside those weights and those sins that so easily beset us. You know, those those friends that uh, like to tempt us. I had, uh, you know, I never forget, I had friends who were trying to tempt me to you know, do whatever with them. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. You know, they saw me a square and all that stuff, but I didn't care. No, I, I really didn't. God gave me a tough skin. That's one of my, I don't know if it's a spiritual gift, but that's one of my gifts. I have, I have tough skin. I don't let things like that bother me. Um, but, you know, I have friends who are trying to tempt me to do different things, especially when I was a young Christian. Uh, but I'll always say no. Uh, so that's kind of what we do as believers. We, we get rid of that life, that former life, those former things that are associated with that life. You know, if you were not a Christian and you had a lucky rabbit's foot hanging, not lucky, but just that's what they call it, a rabbit's foot hanging from your rearview mirror, <laughs> and you came to Christ, well, I don't need that anymore. I don't believe in that. You know, I don't, I don't need this. You know what I mean? You, you put away all those things, any items that you may have, you know, that, that symbolize that, you throw it away. So that's kind of what we see here with these uh, captive uh, women. So they take off their clothes of captivity. And then this is the part that I really like, um, that the Lord is so gracious. It says here, this is continuing in verse 13. She shall lament her father and her mother for a full month. But this was the third thing. So she was to mourn her past associations. It was okay to do that. So it was a time where she could resolve issues in her heart regarding her family. You know, because especially if she was older, you know, in her maybe 30s or 40s or whatever, and she's been with her family for a long time. So this gave her time to resolve issues in her heart regarding her family. And um, and so in this case, the husband uh, did not have any intimate relations with her so that, you know, she could basically almost a trial period to see if this is what she really wanted to do. She was, she was really about this Hebrew life, basically. So, giving her time, giving her space uh, to mourn and to think and to and to ponder and to make sure that she was not making a decision 
you know, based on anything physical. And also make sure the husband's not doing that. That he's not making decisions based on just physical appearance or, or attractive, attractiveness. So this 30-day period kind of gave both, both of them time to see, okay, is this something that we really want to go through with? And I think that shows the graciousness of God and, and how uh, he commanded these, these men to deal with these ladies. Don't, don't just rush her into it. But give her time. So I guess biblically, when a, a woman says she need her needs her space, I guess that's biblical. <laughs> that was one of those things that that joke came off that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, with that back in the days, but uh, thirty days of space. You know, not thirty days of space, but you know, I'm glad Fred didn't tell me that. <laughs> I need space, all right. Need space for the rest of your life for me. <laughs> Yeah, those are, we joke about that in college when the girl said, I, I need some space, but then she's breaking up with the girl. It's friends only, and that's what that means. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, giving her this, these 30 days of basically four months to, you know, kind of ponder things on and make sure this is a right decision uh, that is being made. So I think that's God being very fair in the situation. Then it continues after that. You may go into her and be her husband. So this is when the intimate relations, that's what going into her means, consummating the marriage. And be your husband, and she shall be your wife. Okay? But if you do not, no longer rather delight in her, so this is after 30 days, if, if you know, if they decide to go on, then they consummate their, their marriage. But if they decide not to, if she decides not to, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have uh, humiliated. And this is not me humiliating the sister because the humbling that she had to take, you know, shave her head and you know, doing all that, cutting her nails, that's what it means, you know. Get rid of her with old clothes. That's that's what humiliation means. Not in the same way that we can. So after the month of mourning, uh, the husband was free to marry her, but he didn't have to. Okay, he didn't have to if he didn't want to. But if he decided not to, he had to set her free with dignity. This is what I'm talking about. How how Christianity is good to women. He couldn't just discard her and you know get on out of my house or whatever. Go and find somewhere else to go. Or, whatever the case may be. He had to do it with dignity. She's an image bearer of God. And this is how Christianity is so good to women. Everywhere Christianity spread in the ancient world, women fared better. Children fared better. Wherever Christianity was allowed. Think about our nation now. Think about where our nation is. We turned our backs on God, right? Look at the state of women. Particularly, the demographics that suffer the most are women and children. When um, Christianity is, is pushed out of the public square. Children first. In the womb. You know, you hear people, uh, some, some people that make this, uh, it's a false argument, the uh, gospel argument, they'll say the number one killer of children is guns. 
That's why that's not true. The number one killer of children is abortion. To the tune of almost 600,000 a year or more. If you count the pills that uh, women are taking out of kids and children. So abortion is the number one killer of children, not guns. And it's not even guns. Guns are not even a, a close second. So children are suffering. Why? Because we live in a nation that doesn't see a baby in the womb as an image bearer of God, made in God's image. That's a Christian doctrine. That's a Christian teaching. So when you reject that, then guess who's going to suffer? The children. And then who also suffers from that? The mothers. Because now you have mothers who are the mothers of dead children. You have mothers who are killing their own, killing their own offspring. Because you're rejecting the Christian truth that those babies in your womb from the moment of conception are made in the image of the God who created them. So the children suffer and the women suffer. And the women suffer in other ways too, not just in abortion. Look at this whole uh, argument where you have men competing against women in sports. Women are losing out. You had a, a, a man who was honored by ESPN um, a swimmer, a male swimmer. I'm not going to say biological man because a man is a man. You had a man who was honored uh, by ESPN just this past week. Um, he goes by Leah Thomas. His name is William Thomas. Uh, he was honored as a woman, one of the, one of the most important women out there because he competed in swimming against women. And of course, he beat them all because he was a man. Christianity is good for women. When you push Christianity out of the public square, women and children are the first, they're the most vulnerable in our society. And they're the first ones to lose. They're the first ones to lose. But our society says, uh, no, that's not true. Why? Because our society has rejected God. Well, what do we see happening? We see rampant uh, divorce because of that. Also, women women losing that in that sense also, and children also, because divorce has been made so easy by the no fault divorce uh, laws that came out in the early seventies, made it easier to divorce. What happens in divorce? Women, in most cases, women suffer the most, and also children do too. So when you reject Christianity and even just Christian values, biblical values, biblical worldviews. Women suffer. Women are treated as outcasts. Women are, are treated with uh, disdain. And guess what? A lot of them treat themselves that way. The women who don't have respect for themselves, respect for their bodies, because they lack a biblical Christian worldview, because our society has rejected that. But we see here in Scripture that God commands something better and higher for women. Christianity is good for women. Good for men too, but it's even better for women. So these men were to let their wives go with dignity. They were free to go with dignity, not uh, be treated as slaves, not selling her for money. This was remarkable protection of women's. You know, you want to see true. You want to see women's rights. This is women's rights right here. These are true women's rights. These are true women's rights. And the Bible sets the precedent for that. This is a remarkable protection for 
women in antiquity. And this was thousands of years ago. And then we get to inheritance rights next. And I thought about the two wives thing, and, and, and you know, of course, this was uh, a man was not supposed to have two wives because of uh, polygamy and bigamy. But in this case, it says here, if a man has two wives, so these are uh, laws protecting basically sexual morality. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the first one belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, excuse me, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstborn of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Again, Christianity is good to women and who else? Children. Children. Now, obviously, if a man has two wives, there are going to be problems in his house. And you know, it's funny, those who are who are pro-polygamy, who don't even read the Bible, they'll reference the Bible and reference people who had multiple wives. They'll, they'll reference Solomon. They'll reference, you know, Abraham. They'll reference all these people uh, in the Old Testament that had multiple wives to justify that. But number one, does that mean that it was even good because they had multiple wives? No. Just because something is allowed doesn't mean that it's good. And this also gives the principle that you can't love two wives equally. Jesus gave this principle, this overall principle, no man can serve two masters. The, the principle is you, you can't have the same allegiance toward both of your wives. One is going to be unloved. Think about Rachel and Leah with uh, Jacob. One was loved and one was unloved. Okay? So you can't love two wives. Just like a uh, friend knows this. Uh, we had a, a man who was pastoring two churches. And uh, one of our old elders, <laughs> he said, you can't pastor two churches. It's like a man having two wives. <laughs> you, you, you're going to love one more than the other. And he's right. You can't, you can't be a pastor of two churches. He said, it's like having two wives. And he's right. So, because you can't love both wives equally, you're going to show favor towards one or the other. But, you know, you see shows like Sister Wives and all that makes it seem like, oh, everything's good. Everybody's loved equally. No, it doesn't work like that. No, you can't give 50% to one wife, 50% to another And you can't give 100% to both. You just can't do that. That's not the way our, our heart works. So, in the case of the wife who is unloved, even if the unloved wife had the firstborn child, Guess what? The firstborn rights had to be respected. So this is protecting the children. We saw the last ones protecting women. This one is protecting children. So what was he to do? He was to give a double portion, basically, of all that he had. So he couldn't say, because I don't love this wife as much, I need to treat her sons 
differently. I need to violate God's command when it comes to um, the inheritance of the firstborn. No, God was saying what? This is still your firstborn child. Now, my fault that you, you know, that, that you don't love her. You still have to do what is right uh, by God's word. So this talks about the sin of partiality. You can't be partial when it comes to the firstborn. You still have to give that firstborn uh, his rights. Now this, as again, this presupposes the practice of polygamy, uh, polygamy, but the Bible never condones it. Just because it's there doesn't mean that it is it is condoned. Because the ethic for marriage comes from Genesis 2, I think 24. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You can't have one flesh with three people, or four people, or five people, or six people, or seven people. You can't become a one flesh union that way. Just like I, I saw this uh, um, uh, on Twitter today, um, so-called pastor that Saddleback Church or Rick Warren's church were, were talking about uh, what if a uh, homosexual couple came into their church. Uh, you know, they were they were married and uh, they came to Christ. Do they have to get divorced? And they said, uh, you know, they don't know the answer to that. And someone responded, it's not a marriage in the first place. You know, you have to start there first. You know, they, they can't get divorced. Well, legal sense, but biblically, they're not married. So that's that's not even the question you should be asking in the first place. You address the sin first. Okay, that's the first thing you address. Uh, but the point is, you can't be one flesh that way. Two men and two women can't be a one flesh union. That's not marriage. And a man with two wives is not a one flesh union. So again, just because it's in here, if a man had two wives, doesn't mean that it's okay to have two wives because uh, Genesis 2.24 uh, says different. But it's basically setting a minimum standard for uh, behavior for the firstborn. So, so it says that the firstborn, even if he's a son of the unloved, must receive a double portion. Okay? Firstborn will receive twice as much inheritance as any other son. Well, for instance, if the man had three sons, then the uh, inheritance would be divided into four parts. With the firstborn receiving the two parts, then the other two sons receiving the, the two that are left over. The firstborn always got the double portion in, um, in ancient Israel. And we don't practice that now, but I'm just imagining. I got two sons. <laughs> but I only have one wife, so... <laughs> You know, um, but the point is, in ancient Israel, the firstborn got the double uh, inheritance, always. No matter how many children it was, the firstborn always got uh, double. Okay? And the husband, the father, rather, had to be had to be fair to that child, give him a double portion of all that he had. And the, the reason why is because of, he was the first fruit of his strength. Then he gives a penalty for the rebellious son. This, of course, goes back to the uh, 
There's a fifth commandment, honor your brother and your father, that your days may be long upon the earth. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of the city. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This was the fifth commandment that was being broken. So breaking the fifth commandment basically required the death penalty. Now, if you note, the parents have to take the initiative in this penalty. They have to take the initiative. Why do you think this was so serious to God about the rebellion? So this, uh, why, why, why do y'all think that is? That God took this so seriously, the fifth commandment, and the rebellion song. Anyone want to uh, chime in? Hold on, Daniel. I'm going to give you the microphone so you can be heard on the recording. There you go. Um, I was just saying that our relationship and relationship with God and people and with a child's parent that we can obey God. And any other authority? Yep. Thank you, sir. So, yeah, that's, that's right. The relationship between a parent, a child that parent, relationship between God and Israel. And in the home, the parent is the highest authority that a child has. And the parent, in a sense, is a representative of God's authority in the home. Okay? So if a child is constantly rebelling against their parents, they're rebelling against God's authority in the home. And it, 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 it almost rings true. Well, it does ring true in most situations. Adults who have problems with authority were once at, at one time children who had problems <coughs> with authority in the home. Because the the first line of authority for a child is who? Mom and dad. Not the school teacher, not the principal at the school. Not the coach, you know, not the boss on their job. The first line of authority for a child is in the home. And if this child can't obey God's authority in the home, they're not going to obey civil, civil authority. They're not going to obey moral authority. They're not going to obey the authority of their coaches or the authority of their teachers. They argue with the police officer when they're getting pulled over for a ticket. Why? Because they don't respect authority. They don't respect the authority of the badge. They don't respect that. Why? Because they didn't respect mom and dad in the home. They didn't respect their grandparents. They didn't respect their uncles and aunties and cousins and, you know, they just had no respect for them. So guess what? They're going to argue with the police officer. 
an escalating situation. Those issues are, and, and, and this is when we see all these things that happen outside, we don't get down to the root cause. It starts at the home. It starts at the heart, which starts at the home. Mm-hmm. This problem, person has a problem with authority in school. I guarantee you, you know, that thing. They have that home. That's never explored. But that's where it starts. In the home. That child can't fly, obey from the heart, mom and dad. And it was a teacher problem. I dealt with that as a school teacher. I mean, I didn't have riffraff going on in my classroom because I wasn't that kind of teacher. But I had students who were, uh, you know, trying to, you know, try me. And they tried other teachers and, and you know, Sometimes successfully, they were still in my room. Um, but you had, you had those students at school. They're not respecting the authority of teachers. They respect the authority of the principal. And then when you see their parents, you're like, oh, I see why. Yeah. You know, the parents acting worse than like you. You don't know who is who. Parents, you know, have me. I, I mean, I was at, at uh, a school up here uh, up the street when I was an assistant principal. And, Meeting with parents and parents coming in all hot. And I would say, uh, and usually a single mom, ma'am, we're not going to talk about that in the office. If you settle down, we can talk. Till then, you sit in that seat outside my door until you're ready to come in and talk to me like an adult. That's what I actually hear those parents. You're not going to come in and talk to me. I don't care how hot you are about something your child did. You, you're not going to come into my office like that. You go out there and sit down until you're ready. You know what? They settle down and we talk like adults. So when I see those parents like that, I'm like, no wonder your child is acting like that, man. And that's what I was saying. So I said, okay, I see where the problem is. It's in the home. I said, ma'am, I see where your problem is right now. It's in the home. Does your son listen to you? No. Does he respect you? No. Does he argue all the time? Yes. So, man, that's where your problem is. And he's bringing that same attitude to school, to his teachers. So, we have to deal with the issue in home first. Or else, your child will grow up getting uh, arrested, put in jail, or dead. If that's not corrected. So when we see this command right here, it, it seems harsh, but again, we have to look at the principle behind it. What is what is God? What is God saying? This is a rebellious child. It's a child basically past the age of accountability. He sets himself in determined rebellion against his mother father. They're just determined to rebel, like no matter what. And it says. Who, when they chasing him, will not heed them. So these parents did a good job raising this child. Calling them to obedience. Chasing them as appropriate, you know, before the Lord. And, you know, I'll say this. You have a lot of parents who do that. Even Christian parents. They raise their children well. Now, one thing we as parents can't do 
we're not responsible to save our children. Salvation is of the Lord. We, we do our best to disciple our children, bring them to church with us, teach them in the ways of the Lord. But they can't be saved based on the coattails of their parents. We disciple our children. We teach them the word. God doesn't save you. We can't be saved for our children, in other words. So parents can do that. Parents can raise their children right. As it says here in the, in the passage, chasing them, call them to obedience, discipline them when they step out of line. Parents can do all that, and guess what? Their children can still be rebellious. You don't want that to happen, but that is the outcome of a lot of children. And they can still be rebellious uh, despite that. So, when they do that, the parents, the father, and his mother, notices both parents having to do this. They take hold of their, ch their ch child, their son, and bring him out to the elders of the city. And why else is it dealing with uh, the young man? Because men are the leaders. This young man is going to be raising up to be a, a leader in his nation, a leader amongst his people, a protector and a provider for his family. That's why the onus and responsibility is on the man and on this young boy. So they bring him out to the elders of the city for basically being put before a trial. Now they determine him to be rebellious and to be stoned to death. Now, if you notice, the parents are not to execute this penalty. They had to bring the son before basically impartial judges. They have to do that. So now, this is a contrast to uh, Greek and, and, and Roman law, because in, in I think in ancient Greek and Roman law, it was the fathers who had to um, do that. The fathers had the absolute right uh, to life and death of their of their sons. So you see the contrast between. Roman law, ancient law, ancient Greek law, ancient Roman law, and, and uh, the law of Israel, Hebrew law. They brought them before elders. So they took it to the elders, and the elders uh, decided the situation, they adjudicated the situation, and they stoned them to death. Now, at the end here it says, all Israel shall hear and do what? And fear. Why is that? Because of evil is being purged from their midst. So notice, a rebellious son is considered what? Evil. What did uh, the prophet Samuel tell Saul? Uh, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. In 1 Samuel 16, that's how serious God takes rebellion. Is is as a sin of witchcraft, divination. So this evil son, his evil acts had to be purged from the nation, so as to not send a message to other boys that it's okay to do that. So this stoning caused Israel to hear and fear. 
It was intended basically to protect social order. I mean, you know, the Hold on, we'll get to the mic later. <laughs> I'm sorry. Next time I'll just have the mic and then you like come before the thing like if you uh, just say like, you know, this podcast you out here today is just about mm-hmm. how we have to live. You know, the Bible is saying adultery, you know, this is a word in which you consider God cast them out. Yep. And kill them. Yep. Shouldn't be. Amen. That's how serious that's how serious rebellion was before God. So we have to consider that principle. Also, those who constantly rebel against God, God punishes rebellion against them. So this was, again, because no society could uh, endure the young who were being rebellious. Just think of all the boys in Israel who were rebellious. They, they wouldn't have a nation. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If all the boys decided to revolt against their parents, no, they wouldn't even have a nation if, if that happened. And this was also a deterrent. Then the last thing here, I'm, I'm going I'm to deal with this one next week. Hanging on the tree, but this uh, source points, points to Christ. So we'll, we'll stop where we are with the rebellious son. We'll pick up 22 and 23 uh, tomorrow. I'm sorry, next week, because this kind of points to what we're going to be talking about next week. So anyway, as we pray, close in the morning, pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us what you require of us. Thank you for our time tonight. May this story be a blessing to all of us to obey you, to love you, and to serve you with all of our heart. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. And next week we're going to pick up 22 and 23 because it points back to what's going into.